Yes, yes, what is up, people? Welcome back to yet another episode of Kickoff Sessions. We're now up to episode 108, and I'm joined today with a guy that I've respected for many years. Robert Breedlove joined me on today's podcast to get into all of the details around money, Bitcoin, philosophy, and a very, very deep conversation about monetary policy. If you're not familiar with Robert's work, he is an absolutely fascinating character. So Robert is a Bitcoin-focused entrepreneur, writer, and philosopher. Over the last couple of years, Robert has gone down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. He's particularly inspired by Austrian economics and the techniques of Jordan Peterson, which helped him reconcile his purely objective outlook on reality with its more subjective dimensions of valuation, morality, and meaning. Robert considers himself as a freedom maximalist and believes he has found his life's work in the Bitcoin space as a contributor to the separation of money and state. Through his writing and media work, Robert aims to shine a light on the importance of freedom and self-sovereignty across all spheres of human action. Robert is a very deep and personal individual, which is why I respect him so much. He is literally, in all sense of the word, no bullshit. We get into a very deep conversation around what is money, what is the function of money. We look at freedom, sovereignty, we look at fraud, we look at manipulation, we look at multiple different areas and we all circulate it back to the monetary policy and how the inflows and outflows of money, how this can be corrupted, both in the mind and in the state. This is an absolute fascinating podcast. Robert is someone who has gone down very, very deep rabbit hole on this and you can see it in his work. It's very, very self-evident. If you do enjoy this session, I would really appreciate if you could share this episode towards Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever account you particularly want and and tag myself and Robert Breedlove. This is a real fascinating conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it, so I'll leave it right here and let you get straight into the session. So here's my podcast with Robert Breedlove all around the role of money and Bitcoin. Robert, thank you so much for joining me, man, on another session of Kickoff Sessions. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, man. Thanks for having me. There's been, you know, there's so much content that you've been like publishing over the years. I know we were discussing it too, but like there's always like, there's been so much different aspects of Bitcoin that you've broken into. And I suppose where we see you now is is so far on, you know, and I kind of first want to ask is like, why is it you do what you do? Oh, man, that's a big question. Um well, I'm a big believer in freedom. Yeah, you know, big believer in human freedom. And I guess I look out onto the world today and I just see a world that's made a lot of strides toward that end, you know. Um but yet I think we have a ways to go. And um I you know, I didn't really choose this path necessarily it sort of happened organically in a way but i definitely was impacted in my formative years um by books like the creature from jekyll island you know something that i encountered in my younger years which basically goes through the inception of the federal reserve and uh does a real deep dive on the mechanics of central banking and you know as i've written about um in one of my pieces masters and slaves of money I do consider it to be essentially a watered down version of slavery. You know, it's this institution that engages in systemic and perpetual theft. So it's constantly stealing the time of productive market actors 
through fiat currency inflation. Um, and it also, you know, the existence of the central bank creates a centralized government, or let's say feeds a centralized government that grows to proportions it otherwise could not reach. Mm. A, a government could not become as big as it does on explicit taxation alone because explicit taxation is visible, right? When you get a bill for, uh, I think the numbers I heard on this, these are a little bit staggering. These are, these are America centric numbers, but the war on terror, you know, that we waged from 2001 through today, still, still waging it. I think the number came to like $80,000 per U S household. So if you received a bill from the IRS that said, you know, here's, please pay $80,000 because we're blowing people up on the other side of the world. Um, you could just imagine there'd be a lot more resistance to that mm-hmm. versus just printing the money to pay for the bill. And then when the prices ultimately go up, right, when the inflation's ultimately inflicted on people, government, central bankers, bureaucrats have all of this plausible deniability to blame anyone else other than themselves for price increases, which indeed they're doing right now, right? That we call this, there's significant price inflation in the US on fuel, on food, on housing. And if you read in the mainstream media, they actually call it the Putin inflation. They blame the actions of the Federal Reserve on Vladimir Putin. And, you know, the fact that there is this generalized ignorance on money and economics allows them to get away with it, right? People mm-hmm. just sort of ingest this programming and and regurgitate what they see on mainstream media. And it's just like when you have a perspective on what's actually happening is really disturbing. It's really disturbing to see you know, one, a, a lie be, be effectively propagated through the minds of, of men and women to the point where they're just, you know, again, regurgitating what they see on mainstream media. But two, they are the victims in this scheme. So it's, mm-hmm. they're the ones being robbed. They're the ones being milked, looted, whatever term you want to use. And so it's really pernicious, right? You have the the victims themselves misattributing the cause of their pain, right? They're feeling the pain. They're feeling the cost of living go up while their wages are flat. And they, you know, some people think it's actually think it's Vladimir Putin's fault. And it has nothing to do with the $6 trillion we printed in the past (laughs) two years. So, um, I mean, it's a big question you ask, like the, why do I do what I do? But, um, and there's a lot of other directions I could take it, but I guess I would just say that, I guess I feel that the course of my life has taken me into a position to see the monetary and economic order for what it is. Mm -hmm. And I just intend to communicate that as simply, succinctly, and vividly as possible for people so that they can understand the game that is actually being played. Because if you don't know the game that's being played, you are the game being played when it comes to Mm -hmm. money. So did you always kind of see this as you were, you were younger? So you were before you even reintroduced the Bitcoin. So you were looking at the kind of cracks through it as you're working in a hedge fund and whatnot. And you were seeing this kind of naturally come up because like history repeats itself. We can talk a lot about how 
you know, this has happened over over generations, 2008, the 90s, the 70s. 70s is a similar uh, recessionary cycle as we're looking at now, where it's inflationary. You know, has there always been those examples whereby you've said, okay, well, you know, this economic model of monetary policy and their their approach towards it is consistently not working and mainstream media as well is covering itself up so that the average person on the street you know it's too complicated to understand why this isn't working for for the average person who's too busy moving on with their day well again i so i discovered the creature from jekyll island in 2004 2005 so this is pre-bitcoin and I, I distinctly remember, I've told this story on other shows, so I won't tell the whole thing, but I basically felt like I had reached the bottom of a rabbit hole when I yeah. took a peek into central banking. I was like, oh, wow, this is the problem. We have an institution of theft at the heart of the modern economy. Mm. So everyone that uses fiat currency is being robbed all the time, like completely. And that realization was very significant for me, but even more significant was the helplessness that followed it. Cause like you, you saw this thing, you read about this thing. I want to, you know, I even bought the, I bought a, an abridged version of the creature from Jekyll Island titled dishonest money. And I gave it to family and friends after reading it in the attempt to, I don't know, educate people, wake people up, help people see the, the beast for what it is. And through that whole process, I just realized how hopeless it was. Like what, there's no answer you could sure you can, even I, like I knew what was going on. I didn't want to be part of the dollar system anymore, but what was my alternative? Mm. Right? I'm a young man going into the world, living in the United States. You know, it's not like you're going to bury gold in your backyard and take it to the grocery store once a week and pay for gas and gold coins. Like there's no practical solution uh, to exist outside of the fiat currency complex before Bitcoin. So I was very hopeless overall. Like I had found this thing, thought it was really bad, had no answer for what to do about it. So I kind of just put it in a, like a mental box and put it on the shelf and said, well, that's terrible, but Mm -hmm. That's life. You know, I guess I'll just go on about my business and try to accumulate as many dollars as I can and play this game. And, um, you know, it wasn't until I didn't look into Bitcoin closely the first time I heard about it, like in 2014. It took me a few years hearing about it a few times before I started to go down the rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. But that was the big light bulb for me is like, oh, wow, that we finally have created a technology that lets us exit the system, the, the fiat currency complex, right? It's, it's liberation from um, this institution of, of watered down slavery. And these, okay. The words sound really strong, especially for people that may have not read my work, mm-hmm. but I'll try to spell it out a little bit. So you could define a slave as someone that has a 100% effective tax rate. So that would mean that all of the product of their labor, all of the value of their effort and work goes to the taxing authority, right? What, no matter what value they create for themselves, it goes all to the slave master. That's quantifiably what a slave is, someone with a 100% effective tax rate. Um, 
on the opposite end of that spectrum, someone with a 0% effective tax rate would be a sovereign, right? And mostly in the world today, when we say that, we refer to sovereign nations. We don't refer to individuals. We refer to institutions. The United States, for instance, doesn't pay tax to anyone, right? They just extract tax. So the, the United States as an institution has a 0% effective tax rate. Hence, it is sovereign. Well, um, you could basically just take your effective tax rate that you pay in your country, and that's what percentage of a slave you are. And it sounds, again, people are like, what, what do you mean? No, taxes have been with us forever. Well, you know what else has been with us forever? Slavery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Slavery is the norm of human history. People have been dominating, domineering, and controlling one another since the beginning of time. And we've only recently put it in this new system that it's it's perpetrated much less visibly as i said earlier with the printing of money you can blame it on everyone else um the, it, it's hard to trace the consequences of printed money when you don't understand money which mm-hmm. i would argue is why most most of the education system is uh gives you a very poor education in economics specifically leading people into keynesian economics which is a pseudoscience it's a pseudoscience Mm-hmm. intended to justify the printing of money. So it's, um, and maybe one more way to look at this, if we just zero in on fractional reserve banking itself, this is another one of those terms that's thrown around very kind of esoteric and obscure, but what does it actually mean? Well, the purpose of the bank originally was to hold your money, right? To, you could, instead of stashing all your gold or silver in your home and incurring the risk of a home break-in or taking the responsibility of physical custody under yourself, you could outsource this function to a warehouse. And you could stash your gold with a warehouse. The warehouse would issue receipts to you, paper receipts, that were redeemable for that monetary metal. Well, since metal is expensive to custody and uh, risky to move around, risky to transact in. This was an effective business structure because people could now mm-hmm. trade these paper receipts that are redeemable for gold as if they were as good as gold because they, indeed they were. The problem, however, with this business is that you now have placed all your trust in the custodian, which is the warehouse or what we now call the bank. And, you know, it didn't take bankers long to realize that it's and i shouldn't put all the blame on bankers i'm not um they're players in the game it didn't take long for people to realize that there's a honey pot right if you can control the bank and you can have the bank issue additional warehouse receipts so over issue paper more paper than they have gold reserves to justify for instance mm-hmm that that is effectively a source of limitless revenue. So banks originally, when they were private private businesses, they didn't overissue paper very often because, uh, again, they're private businesses. So they had shareholders, they had they had a reputation to uphold. If they overissued paper and there's a run on the bank, well, the bank would collapse, would go bankrupt, mm-hmm. all the uh, shareholders would get wiped out. But the problem is governments will intervene government being the monopoly on violence and say, Hey, 
you know, bank, issue additional paper, issue us additional loans or guarantees or whatever it may be under the threat of violence or coercion. And so banks were basically a honeypot for governments to uh, afford themselves unlimited revenue or nearly unlimited revenue. And so that's been the problem, right? We, we've been dealing with a technological limitation in our money, which was gold is physical, heavy, hard to move around. We needed to overcome that technical technological limitation with a currency, gold-backed currency that made money much more transactable, right? We, and another way I say this is, you know, gold, if money is a tool for moving value across space and time, gold was really good at holding value across time, not mm-hmm. so good at moving it across space. You introduce a gold-backed currency, you now have the ability to move value across space very easily, right? You can move paper much more easily than you can move physical gold. And so long as the peg to gold reserves is maintained, the money also holds value across time. But the issue is that peg. Who do you trust to maintain the peg? Mm-hmm. And that's been the problem with money throughout all of human history is we we didn't have an instrument that had a fixed or nearly fixed supply that we could move at the speed of or near the speed of light. That's what we were trying to approximate with a gold-backed currency. But every time we did that, the trust placed in that institution was violated to benefit the, the insiders that could benefit from it that would then externalize the cost onto everyone else. And that's what we've had. We've had, you know, business cycles, civilization, boom and bust, the run on the bank, like a run on the bank would never exist. Mm-hmm. A, run on, a run on a full reserve bank is not possible. If the peg is one to one, right? And every dollar in circulation is backed by one unit of gold in reserve, a run on the bank just means everyone went and reclaimed their deposits. The bank does not fold. The bank Mm -hmm. holds enough assets to satisfy the liabilities it has outstanding. The run on the bank occurs only on fractional reserve banks. So effectively, once you print one more unit of paper than you have gold reserves to justify, you are engaging in a fraud. So fractional reserve banking, if you ever hear this term, and every bank in the world is fractional reserve banking. Um, And indeed, in a fiat currency environment, you're basically zero reserve. They've completely severed Mm -hmm. the connection to gold, silver, any monetary metal. Just translate that in your mind to fraud. So that is the world we're living in. and since 1971, as I said, you know, we've gone to this global fiat currency standard. There are no more reserves. Mm-hmm. Um, so we call it, you know, America's Central Bank is the Federal Reserve Bank, but that's a really bogus moniker because it's not federal and there are no reserves. It's mm-hmm. just this uncollateralized government debt certificate undergoing a slow motion default while its use is forced on productive members of society. And those members pay the bill on that debt through inflation. And, you know, break the money, break the world, man. It's Mm -hmm. it's really bad. How can you get ahead in a world where you're constantly being robbed? And especially it's the rate of change that's because, you know, exasperated, especially, of course, you've seen the last two years, but over time, as you said, the, the value of the dollar decreasing, the rate that it's changing is just, is just accelerating. 
when you mentioned so there's a couple of points you that I want to dig into, but let's just focus on on the gold aspect of it. So of course, gold is difficult to to transport. It doesn't move that well across uh, space and time. Um, however, do you still think that there's there maybe was merit to, to stay on a gold standard originally? Like since then, has there been a, a dramatic kind of you know uh, move towards soft money? You know, and the hard money element of it has been completely um, kind of dissolved, essentially. Um, and is is there kind of merit to that? Forgetting about Bitcoin at the moment, but if we stayed on that in the in the, when was it nineteen ten or nineteen fifteen, the Bank of England, and was the big driver behind that maybe from a manipulation perspective, uh, corruption perspective, is why they wanted to move off it. Well, so a couple of things. Um, you know, the history of central banking and the history of war are one and the same, basically. You know, war is what typically drives nations off of a hard money standard onto a soft currency standard. Because, and, and there is another like really pernicious incentive problem we've been dealing with. Nations, let's say like monarchs of the past, when they would wage war against one another, they had their own balance sheet, right? Their own war chests, their own reserves from which to fund warfare. Uh, war being the most expensive activity humans can engage in, this was a limiting factor on warfare. So when two monarchs would go to war, the one that got into financial straits first would typically just want to sign a treaty, right? Cut a deal and get it done because you just run out of money. Mm -hmm. But if you can print money, if you add this fiat currency element to it, all of a sudden the nation or monarch is not limited to the confines of their own balance sheet or war chest. They can now print money and externalize the cost of that printing onto the entire society that's using the currency. So instead of just having your own small war chest, you now have the entire savings of your civilization as your war chest. You can hyperinflate the currency to fund warfare. So the, so game theoretically, what does this mean? This means that if one warring nation decides to go onto a soft money standard to a fiat currency standard, print money to fund warfare, well, they now have an advantage over a nation that uses a hard money standard because they have a larger war chest. So this creates this weird pernicious incentive problem where the the nation on a hard money standard now almost has to move to a fiat currency standard just to keep up with their crazy neighbor that did it. So this this idea of moving from hard money to soft money, it becomes infectious in a way, right? Where you are almost subject to the you know, your craziest neighbor basically. Whoever wants to do it first almost forces the hand of everyone else to do it. And so when you look at like the inception of the Bank of England, um, you know, initially again, it was kind of a private organization, right? They held accounts, they held reserves, they settled balances, they handled international financial flows, all of these things. But as soon as war um, became an issue, they they suspend convertibility, right? They stopped sending gold out. They'll only issue paper. They'll over issue the paper. They won't let people get gold out. And it just 
fans the flames of warfare in that way. And, uh, you know, all of this, sure, like it, it could have been prevented or, or at least suppressed with a gold standard. But no one, you could, ne- the gold standard never worked. It just never works because all the bank has to do, all the government has to do is say, hey, don't let people redeem gold anymore, Bank of England. And the Bank of England says, okay. And that's that. The gold standard's over. Like it's just, it's one decree. So the gold standard is one decree away from destruction at all times. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem, right? If you had something that people could self custody easily, uh, economically, then they wouldn't even need to centralize the custody of gold in one place and they wouldn't create this honeypot for the governments to monopolize in the first place. And that's what Bitcoin basically is, right? That's why Bitcoin's better than gold because mm-hmm. everyone can hold their own keys and it's damn near impossible to confiscate. And so if you're doing that, then you've taken away the funding source for um, perpetual global warfare. Yeah, completely understand. So is there a possibility that Bitcoin can become a soft money? So let's say hypothetically or in any event, is is that possible? I know there's a limited supply, but you know, technically, is it possible to be programmed in such a way or altered in such a way that it can become a soft money? It's possible um, to do anything to Bitcoin, but what you have to understand is that there's a money is always based on social consensus because money is a social technology. So, effectively, what what's going on in Bitcoin is um, users run their own node, and that node is essentially you're choosing what rule set you want to run. So do I want to run the Bitcoin that has 21 million or 22 million or 23 million or 48 million? And so each user is deciding for themselves which form of Bitcoin is in their best interest. And as a holder of money, you always want the money that is most scarce or most limited in supply. Mm-hmm. So there is this, what they call in game theory is a shelling point, right? It's the strategy that distrustful players adopt um, in lieu of being able to communicate and trust one another. So the shelling point of money really is to just hold the most scarce money. So in Bitcoin, there's a really strong social consensus or shelling point on this 21 million motif. So while it is, you know, literally possible that we could all decide, oh, 21 million is not working. We all, let's all go to 42 million. Only the dumbasses would do that because and that, that's what all coins are essentially. That's what all coins are. All altcoins are that. Um, so it's although it's you know literally possible, it's not practically possible that people just won't do it. I mean, people will, and if they do do it, the main chain forks. Your incentive is to hold both copies of the coin because you get allocated one for one, right? With sort of like the 2017 Bitcoin Cash fork. If you're holding Bitcoin, you're allocated one unit of Bitcoin cash per unit of Bitcoin. And so what you've done is you've effectively forked that social consensus into two different layers, and then they compete. Um, and that's, you know, 
There have been a lot of attempts on Bitcoin. The 2017 fork was effectively a civil war among the community. And that, um, you know, Bitcoin Core has won out. It's proven itself uh, to be the winner there. But there is, there's another threat here. And that's, that is with custody. As I said, with gold, you know, it was the centralization of gold's custody that was the problem. If a majority of the Bitcoin is centrally custodied and people are not using self-custody or multi-sig or some uh, form of proof of reserves, you know, some check that the Bitcoin that they're actually holding is, is their Bitcoin, even with, a, even with a reserve check, if you're running an audit on the reserves, that just tells you that the custodian you're using has the Bitcoin they, says, they say that they have. But really, you need to hold your own. This is why we say in Bitcoin all the time, not your keys, not your coin. Mm-hmm. The more Bitcoin that is held with custodians, the more opportunity there is for issuing paper Bitcoin on top of it or Bitcoin uh, derivatives. So, and these instruments can actually be used to artificially expand the supply. And, and indeed, this is happening today, right? It happens less and less as we have more counterparty blowups. We just had a lot of them the past six months. Mm-hmm. But so long as that is there, you can have more, you know, I've heard estimates of up to 50 million paper Bitcoin in circulation, whereas there's only 21 million possible at the protocol layer. So, um, and that's often called, I mean, that's over-issuance. There's also rehypothecation where people basically lend out, you know, you may have one unit of Bitcoin in reserve. You may lend that out, the paper Bitcoin, four, five, seven times. That's all leverage on top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these things can be used to suppress the Bitcoin price because you're effectively inflating the supply. So... I mean, the the punchline there for anyone that's listening to this is unless you hold your own private keys, you do not have Bitcoin. The Bitcoin you see on your bank or your Coinbase account or whatever custodian, I don't care who it is. I don't care how regulated they are. I don't care how many assets under management they have. I don't care how how many friends on Wall Street they have. You know, if it's becoming an ETF, it doesn't fucking matter if you're not holding your private keys you don't have bitcoin and you're probably going to lose it honestly because when this battle really heats up all the bitcoin that can be seized will be seized everyone in the world is going to be scrambling for bitcoin as fiat currency starts to collapse so my advice would be to get your keys in your hand as fast as possible um we've seen that already with coinbase and announcing that you know they don't they can actually like take your assets as a as collateral, you, don't, if they own, were you don't own anything in a bank ever. Even the dollars you have in your bank account are not yours. Read the statement. You're in a creditor-debtor relationship. You have loaned the bank your dollars. They're not yours. That bank blows up, your dollars are gone. FDIC insurance is a scam. It has less than 1% of the assets that it purports to cover. Mm-hmm. So this is like part of getting into Bitcoin is... The, <laughs> This shattering realization that almost everything you've learned in fiat reality is a lie. And almost every organizational institutional form is a scam in one way or another. Sounds like strong words, but I mean, check me. Like go go down the rabbit hole and check for yourself. No, you're, you're dead right. And that's why the big thing for me was reading uh, the Bitcoin standard. So when I first read that, I was like, what the fuck? You know what? It was so, it was so funny that. So I did economics in school, not in, not in uh, university. But I was, to- I was 
educated on Keynesian economics, which I just believe to be mm. the economic model. Bear in mind, because it was just taught to me. And in school in Ireland, this is what was taught. And I went through it and learned about it. And then I just saw it in, in, in practice then a couple of years later. But then one thing that I kind of wanted to ask off this was that, so we look at this and we, and we see history repeat itself that, you know, it, this model has not worked. And right. even the inflation of 2% is like this imaginary number that they've literally picked out of this 2%. Okay. Right. What is actually the alternative from an economic model perspective? So for a, a functioning society to happen, what actually is the alternative? Is, is it Austrian economics? Is there another alternative that, that you would propose? Yeah, I mean, one one of the things, studying the history of money, which is more or less the history of humanity, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. now granted, you go pre five to 7,000 years ago, you can go into like millions of years of proto-human history where we're, you know, hunters and gatherers and all that. But let's say that the history of civilization, at least, and the history of money are inexorably bound together. And one of the things that really struck me in, in reading a lot about this is that, man, human beings are just always trying to print money. We're all, like anyone that, can, and it's not just money itself, any, anything that I can sell you, right? Any paper claim on whatever asset in the world that I can spin up and conjure up and build some hype around and sell it to you for real money and then I can convert that real money into something no one else can print or counterfeit like gold. That's been the name of the game. So that's why humans have just been engaging in, in one scam after another. And to the point where, I mean, the scam becomes institutionalized, as we said, with fractional reserve banking and central banking, but it's not, I want to be clear here that I'm not saying that people are all devious and they're all out there trying to like scam other people it also becomes almost like a form of self-deception and you see this struggle when you look at like a good book on this there's a great little book titled fiat currency inflation in france and it goes through the asinia saga where they're printing this currency called the asinia this is roughly three generations after france had already been through a hyperinflation and um, the people that went through that episode basically had written a long literature saying, never again, you can never print money. It puts you in this vicious cycle. It destroys the economy. People go fucking crazy. Like when the currency collapses, you're basically inducing a mass psychosis because you can't trust anyone, right? You can't get food. You can't get basic needs met. You can't trust anyone. You can't trust the money. So like it literally... It's the glue that holds civilization together. So when you when you debase the currency, you dissolve this glue, society falls apart, people go ape shit. So that all happened, right? Then three generations later, they say, no, you know what? They were wrong. They printed it too fast. We're going to do it again. We're going to just print a little bit. And we're going to do these other little mechanical schemes to make sure we don't hurt ourselves. You know, this time it's different. The, the, the perennial, this time it's different belief that people always suffer from and sure enough you know once they start engaging in that self-deception that we can print just a little bit and then oh what there's a little economic downturn well we'll print just a little bit more you know just this one time just this one exception and then mm -hmm. oh there's a well 
as you print more money, you're creating, you're distorting price signals more and more. So you're creating more and more misallocation of capital. You're exacerbating the boom and bust. So then the next bust is a little more painful. So you got to print a little bit more money. And it's very much in this way that societies get sucked into this addictive relationship with printing money. And it always leads to self-destruction. It's, it's the exact same dynamic as the alcoholic having one drink, right? Had a rough day at work. Just going to have one drink, maybe just one more, you know, the guys are out. I'll have one more. Okay. Just a couple more. And then before you know it, they they wake up in a ditch, right? Hungover, mm-hmm. needing to go to rehab. It's the same path of this reciprocal narrowing where you, you take the easy option versus enduring the pain, right? For, versus being sober or going to rehab or doing the work that needs to be done. Um, you take the low hanging fruit of just having one more drink or just one more dollar printed. And that's what leads to the destruction. And like, what is the alternative system to get to your question? Well, full reserve banking works just fine. A gold standard really works pretty damn well. If human beings were not corruptible, if we could be trusted, if we were not deceivers, if we were not sinners, right? But you're never gonna you're never gonna fix that. You cannot fix that. You cannot reprogram human nature. You can't legislate human nature. You can't engineer human nature. All you can do is design around it, right? Assume that everyone's trying to fuck you all the time and build the system around it. So this gets into the work of someone like Nick Zabo that describes a successful money as a trust minimized asset which is to say that I'm going to hold the asset that minimizes my need to trust anyone else. That's what gold was, right? Nobody could print gold. No one could counterfeit it. If I'm holding physical gold, no one in the world can decree gold is not valuable or reverse transactions or anything like that. It's trust minimized. The more gold I hold, the less I care about anyone else's opinion worldwide. And you know, indeed, that's where Bitcoin again is like a step change improvement because where gold suffered, as we said earlier, in portability, also that it's more easily seized or confiscated. Bitcoin is not, right? Bitcoin is very portable. It's pure information. You can move it at the speed of light. And because it's pure information, you can custody it in any number of unique ways. Anywhere you can store information, you can store Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So it gives the holder this um, very powerful option, right? To to insulate themselves from the opinions of others and to minimize their need to trust other people. And there's there's a bit of a paradox there. It sounds bad. Again, trust minimization. People are like, what do you mean? We need more trust, not less trust. It's like, no, that's not what I'm saying to you. I'm saying... To the extent that we can remove our economic livelihood from our need to trust other people, it actually opens up an opportunity for us to engage in more trusting behaviors. Because now if you break my trust, you don't take my life savings. You just mm-hmm. break my trust and I you know, cut you out of my life and I move on. Whereas right now, if the central bank breaks its trust, right, they break their obligation or their duty, Everyone suffers and they can suffer cataclysmically, right? You can, many, 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 many people have lost everything. Their life savings, multi generational fortunes have been lost through hyperinflation. 
and it's happened repeatedly. Mm-hmm. So um, the alternative system is Bitcoin. There's no other option. There's no other way. There's there's a great guy on Bitcoin Twitter named Bitcoin Tina, and that's what his acronym stands for, T-I-N-A. There is no alternative. Under that concept, so just going back to the, the gold example and just using it as an analogy, so you said you know, the Bank of England can wake up tomorrow and say, okay, we're moving off a gold standard. Anyone that has gold, it's now illegal. You have to hand over your assets. You're going to be given paper money. Not to the same point you're going to be given paper money, but is there a eventuality whereby states, countries, nations can combine and say, we're putting a stop to crypto? Now, people can still have their private keys completely, right? But they can't send, transact, uh, convert back into fiat or anything like that, therefore closing down the opportunity that, that it has. So people do still hold it, but now there's no way you can actually use it as a medium of exchange or any of those properties that that, that money hold. Yeah, so uh, to the first point, fiat currency is extremely dangerous because obviously inflation's a big problem, but there's another problem of just outright deauthorization um the indian central bank this was i think a decade or so ago one day uh holders of the 500 note 500 rupee banknote woke up and just found out it was canceled they just canceled the whole i remember that it's fucking ridiculous man so i mean if you just imagine uh, you know if you're living in the u.s you wake up one day and like hey 100 bills are just canceled now like they're not money anymore like the inflation's bad, but that's really bad. Like just turn the key, right? Talk about counterparty risk and exposure to the opinions of others. Like that's why you don't want to have to trust anyone with your money because mm-hmm. the, the trusted other can turn it off. Um, also bail-ins, you know, if you look at the, the Greek, uh, the Cyprus episode where basically one day you wake up, uh, everyone that had deposits over a threshold amount, I don't recall the amount, maybe it's 100,000 euro in the bank, 90% of it was just confiscated overnight, right? So every dollar you had over 100,000 euro was uh, 90 cents of every dollar over 100,000 was taken. So like, it's not even an asset, right? If asset and accounting, asset equals liability plus equity. So there's a huge L, there's this huge liability component in every fiat currency, in every non-self-custodied asset in the world. Like your custodian is a liability, especially if they're a currency issuer or a tax authority. They will just take your shit. So, if, you know, I don't know what, what else to tell people at this point. It's like if, if you trust your money, then you've never opened a history book, as far as I can tell, or you just haven't. Mm-hmm. Not the right history book, at least. <laughs> um, but now, when it comes to Bitcoin, you know, your question: Can they just make it illegal or make conversions into fiat currency illegal and put a stop to it? The only thing that regulators can control or clamp down on are the gateways, right? So they can they can clamp down on banks, they can clamp down on exchanges, they can clamp down on uh, custodians. So. Again, uh, you know, I think this is probably the third time we've said this in that episode. That's why you want to avoid all those arrangements, right? Yeah. Be in self-custody. Mm-hmm. But what they can't do 
or at least this is the 100 trillion dollar question that I like to joke because Bitcoin has at least a 100 trillion dollar addressable market. And I would say that's very much on the conservative side. That's just global narrow money. Global M2 is about 100 trillion. Um, the 100 trillion dollar question is how do you stop the Bitcoin network? And despite all of the entrenched interest and institutions of political power arrayed against the success of Bitcoin, despite hundreds of billions of market cap stored on its network 13 years into this project, it's the ultimate honeypot, right? It's the ultimate enemy of the state. It's the ultimate disruptive technology. No one's ever done anything to it at all. It is had, you know, 99.9997% uptime. It's done exactly what Satoshi programmed it to do basically from the jump. Sure, it's had um, software issues and whatnot. It's a software project, but they've always been addressed. They've always been fixed and it's never deviated from its supply schedules, never devi- deviated from its block time. Um, you know, as I think Satoshi said something to the effect that the code is written in a way that once version 0.1 is released, that it's effectively etched in stone. Um, that's what it's been doing, right? It's been keeping its promise perfectly for over 13 years now. And there's no known way to turn it off. I mean, the analogous question you could ask is how do you turn off the internet everywhere worldwide forever? (laughs) That's what it would take to really, and that not even that technically stops Bitcoin because you don't need the internet to transact in Bitcoin. Um, But it's obviously a very significant component of its, of its value proposition. Yeah. And so, can we imagine circumstances where the internet is turned off everywhere worldwide forever? Yeah, I can. But I think those circumstances are so draconian and worse than draconian. I mean, it has to be catastrophe, right? It has to be, I don't know, global war that takes out everything. I don't, you know, it just has to be something so catastrophic that at that point, all hope is damn near lost anyways. I think Bitcoin mm-hmm. might be the last of your concerns. So um, if you, to the degree that you don't think we're headed towards absolute annihilation. Yeah, it's um, going to be in existence. You would expect Bitcoin <laughs> to continue s- successfully operating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, the other thing, it's important to know this too, because it's very easy to get into this us versus them paradigm. When you're looking at government, you're looking at this, what appears to be, even the way we talk about it, right? We're talking about the government, like there's some dark entity, you know, looking over our shoulder. But at the end of the day, these are constructs of human beings, right? Individuals comprise the government. And individuals do not follow laws. Individuals follow incentives. So, Every individual, even those inside of government, are facing the same or similar circumstances, right? Um, Inflation is escalating. Taxation is escalating. Social divisiveness, as a result, is is becoming more and more manifest. 
the world's becoming faith in social institutions is being lost. Individuals are becoming less trusting of one another as a result. These are all consequences of fiat currency inflation. Again, open a history book. Uh, in that situation, people are driven into hard assets, scarce assets, trust minimized assets. So the longer this game continues to play out, the more I see individuals choosing to hold Bitcoin as a means for survival. And this mm -hmm. includes the individuals inside of government. Not evenly. I'm not saying this is some even utopia. Everyone gets a little bit of Bitcoin and we all sing Kumbaya. But people are going to face the harsh realities of, of what money is and how it works and how trust works. And the more blowups we have, whether they're of nation states or individual counterparties, the more chaos there is, this anti-fragile social institution we call Bitcoin benefits from all of that because it is the only thing, it's the only unshakable, immovable object amid all of this chaos. So people seek shelter there. Um, so that's how I see it playing out. You know, I, and it might be a bit of an extreme or unpopular opinion, but I don't think there's going to be any, I don't think any of our current social or economic institutions will remain standing after the dust settles, not in the form we know them at least. And you may, you raise a really good point there about us versus them, them being like the government and us being, let's say Bitcoin, let's say so Bitcoin versus the government. Do you think that there can be, that we can exist in a, in a, in a period whereby there's government embracing Bitcoin? Like, so like the El Salvador example, so do you think that kind of example, so first question on that is that, do you think that's um, done with the right incentives? Do you think that they have actually approached that with the right ideas and the right concept that they want to actually embrace this concept? And as well as that then is, do you think like other countries can actually adopt and live with it, especially with government? Or does there need to be this detachment between two? You know, I, I see it more as a dissolution. It's so if we just focus on inflation itself, right? Um, the year 2020, the United States collected $4 trillion in explicit tax revenue and they printed roughly $4 trillion. So the revenue mix for the US government in 2020 was 50% taxation, 50% inflation. Now, the more you inflate a currency, the more you're taxing the holders of the currency, the more you're creating incentives for the holders of currency to shelter their wealth in anything other than the currency. That's why in fiat currency world, we have monetized equities, we have monetized real estate, we have monetized oil, commodities, etc. Because you can't fucking print those things. So if you're printing all this money, people will naturally shelter their wealth in the things that cannot be printed. So, and we talked earlier about this, you know, I, I mentioned the book, Fiat Currency Inflation in France, but one of the, the laws that's explored in that book is the law of accelerating issuance and depreciation. And we talked about this a little bit with the, the example of the alcoholic. The more currency you print or counterfeit, you have diminishing returns. So there's kind of a stimulative effect in the beginning. It can be stimulative to economic activity in the beginning, but it causes a misallocation of capital. So it makes the next bust even worse, which, may need, which 
causes you to need to print even more money to make up for that bust, but you get a diminishing effect per unit of currency printed. So you get into this vicious cycle where the more currency you issue, the faster it depreciates and the more you need to issue to overcome the past depreciation. This is the vicious cycle that leads to hyperinflation. So as we are debasing the currency, printing the currency, you're creating incentives, which again is what people follow incentives, not laws, to find other means of sheltering their wealth. You're creating this osmotic pressure effectively, driving people out of currency into Bitcoin over time. So what does that mean for the state? Well, I think in the long run, whatever that is, I don't know if it's decades, centuries, who knows, no one is going to hold an inflationary currency. Why would you, right? If you, we again, we think the dollars in our bank account are assets, but they have this huge liability injected directly into them, right? They can be de- deauthorized, mm-hmm. counterfeited, inflated, confiscated, reversed, whatever. Like it's a full, it's riddled with liabilities. The more you exercise the liability of inflation on that asset, the more you're driving people into alternatives. So you're creating this osmotic pressure to push people out of fiat currency into Bitcoin over time. What does this mean from the standpoint of government revenue mix? Well, if we look at the US in 2020 and 50% of the revenues were inflation, 50% of government revenues go away in the long run. So what does that mean? If your business loses 50% of its revenue, what happens to your business? It's closed down. It's over. It shrinks at least, right? Maybe it's not over, but it's got to shrink. It's not, Mm -hmm. you know, it's math, right? The institution has to contract. And now typically government doesn't contract because why? They have the monopoly on money. They print more money, paper over the losses, business as usual, government grows no matter what. Well, that's exactly what's going away here is that option to paper over losses. So I think what Bitcoin does is it introduces incentives to each individual to escape the systemic predation of fiat. And those incentives grow in tandem with the rate of change of the money supply. So this osmotic pressure pushing people out of currency into Bitcoin simultaneously collapses the revenue profile of the state, which causes government to shrink. So I don't see it, again, this us versus them is not very useful because Governments are effectively a multiplication of ourselves, our desires, our ideas, right? That's what it's intended to be, at least. Mm-hmm. And when you start to, when you tilt the the individual incentives, that the current mode of government organization starts to dissolve. The overbloated fiat currency funded central bank installed nation state shrinks and I think ultimately dissolves. And so this gets into the whole sovereign individual thesis. It's a book I always recommend to people. Um, You know, it's written in 1997. It's made a number of accurate predictions, including social media, including the use of a pandemic by nation states to try and coerce people and reinforce the validity of their borders. It also predicted anonymous digital cyber cash leading to the dissolution of the nation state. So Uh, The thesis of that book is that we're moving from a world with 200 nations to one with 20,000 in the long run. And that's what it's all about, right? There's only, look, every business in the world, every business in the world, let me back up. Every organization, every group of people that come together to do a thing is a business. 
even your book club, even your church, they're all businesses. If they don't have economic inflows that are greater than their economic outflows, then they don't exist. They do not subsist. They do not persist. They, they're not, they're not a going concern as we would say in business. There is only, so every human organ, organization is a business. Every business must be profitable to survive. Um, which means every business owner is accountable to their profit and loss statement, right? Their PL, right? Which means they're accountable to the satisfaction of their customers. If you're not satisfying your customers profitably, then you're going away. Mm-hmm. The one exception to this rule is the fiat currency funded nation state that can produce perpetual losses and paper over them by printing money and stealing from society. That's why your DMV sucks. That's why all, you know, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government solution. That's why everything the government touches, every industry the government's involved with sucks more than private industry, right? Because there's this distortion, this fiat distortion of misallocated capital, theft, deceit, all of that. It's a laziness. When that goes away, right? All of a sudden, you can't print money to paper over your losses. You can't print money to fake it. You can't print money to pretend that you are an organization that is producing satisfaction in the world. When that goes away, all of a sudden, government is just like every other business in the world. They're accountable to their P&L, which means they're accountable to the preferences of their customers, which means they have to listen to people. Otherwise, people will vote with their feet. And now the other thing about people voting with their feet in a Bitcoin world, you can move all your capital in your brain across the border, right? When you vote with your feet, you're also leaving with all of your net worth. That was not possible in fiat currency complex. Study the history of the Wahlbergs trying to escape uh, Germany during Hitler's rise to power, right? They would. There's one um, tale of a guy having his wife, I think, make coat hangers out of gold and silver. So they could sneak metal out of the country because the Nazis initially was like 50% tax to leave, then 70, then 80, then 90, then all of your net worth to leave. And then eventually they just take your, your money and kill you, like won't even let you leave. So when that, that set of options for the individual changes, I don't see how a centralized government will continue to remain relevant, right? They have mm-hmm. to be accountable to their PL cannot manipulate you as easily with capital controls, can't coerce you to steal your money directly if you're smart with it. And people will, I know people take a long time to wise up, but people adapt to reality. So the more you're stealing, the more you're inflating, the more you're compromising people's economic livelihood, they will figure out how to get around that, right? And Mm -hmm. those that don't will die and be naturally selected out of existence those that do will succeed and survive and propagate. And so that's what's changing here is we've changed, we fundamentally changed the incentive schema that we inhabit as a human organism. And that is what reshapes all of the social institutions we build for ourselves, including government. Yeah. And we really see that as well in developing nations whereby things have got completely unhinged like Sri Lanka recently, a few other kind of developing Venezuela, where you see like, you know, a company or country that's been abusing their monetary system so much. And then it kind of blows up in their face completely. Mm -hmm. And what's really 
I think I was kind of worrying about this was that I saw recently UN who are meant to be neutral mm. in, in this article that they're neutral in terms of uh, their financial in- incentives said that for Bitcoin to adopt or Bitcoin to be adopted by developing nations, it's a massive like red flag because it's not like a silver bullet bullet. It won't um, give full coverage, but what's been happening at the moment has just shown that in these co- in these nations whereby they're very very like fickle and they're very dependent on the US to begin with and that was one of the big reasons for Sri Lanka going bust was that they didn't have as much USD in reserve so then when they were trading with with neighboring countries they were left to rely on their own um currency which was even more inflated at that period mm-hmm. so what's your kind of thoughts around that from a developing country perspective do you think that's where Bitcoin can really apply and really actually kind of help people in, in need or is there is there some sort of more kind of adjustment has to be made? Well, first thing is first, I would say, you know, let's be clear that the World Bank and the IMF, these are imperial extensions of the United States and the Federal Reserve System. They are Agreed. designed to get emerging markets in debt and um, you know, as John Adams said, there's two ways to enslave a country. One is by sword, one is by debt. So when I say it's a system of slavery, I'm not kidding. It's exactly what it is. Um, in terms of Bitcoin opportunities that are presented to emerging markets, I think you'll see a lot more countries running the El Salvador playbook. Um, you know, they've made it legal tender. They started to acquire Bitcoin. I would expect to see there to be a lot of knock-on benefits from that, just drawing in capital, mind share, businesses. Um, they'll also benefit from the appreciation of Bitcoin as it's sucking more value to the fiat currency complex. So El Salvador is going to become more, uh, it's a very poor country right now, but it will develop, it will gain more economic footing as a result of the monetization of Bitcoin, which when other countries see this, right, you've, you've started to exit this IMF, World Bank, U.S. scheme. You're holding a money that's appreciating X percent year over year. You're creating leverage for yourself on the geopolitical stage, um, all with a relatively simple play, right? You're just mm-hmm. turning assets into assets that no one can counterfeit or steal or deauthorize. You know, the other thing we saw that was really earth shattering was the freezing of Russia's central bank reserves to the tune of 600 something billion dollars. I mean, everyone in the world's paying attention to that, right? That's, Mm -hmm. that's counterparty risk writ large. And so you couldn't even imagine a a bigger billboard, at least so at least yet for Bitcoin, right? I'm sure there's going to be more of these episodes as we get further into global currency collapse, which is what we're living through. But the emerging markets being a little more hungry, a little more nimble, typically, are going to adopt this playbook more quickly, I would say. And I think they will become, you know, kind of bastions for this emerging sovereign individual thesis, where maybe we see some of these smaller nations just become some of the first uh, jurisdictions that are very tolerant and even welcoming to sovereign individuals you know people that just want to live free low to no or predict at least predictable tax regimes um you know easy easy onboarding for 
passports or, or global access systems, things like this. Um, you know, again, if, if the big theme here is that governments are going to be shrinking and f- being forced to be accountable to the preferences of their customers, which is effectively saying governments are becoming more like a free market enterprise that actually has to compete, right, rather than just oppress, you would expect these smaller nations to adapt more quickly because they just move a lot faster. Uh, and they're much more in touch with with the pain that's being inflicted because they've largely yeah. been the direct uh, recipients of that pain. And as I often like to say, pain is information, right? Pain is what tells you whatever you're doing is not working. And it tells you you've got to do something different. Whereas, you know, the United States, many decades of imperialism and plunder under its belt, it's much more desensitized to these changes in the world. And I'm not, obviously I'm generalizing here when I say the United States, but those in power in the United States have no fucking idea what they're doing right now. Um, They're burning down the ship, basically. Um, But because it's always worked in the past, right? You could always just print money, pass another law, blow up another country. Mm -hmm. That's just not going to work anymore. And it's all thanks to Bitcoin. So, you know, Bitcoin, man, it's a lot of things, but I would say... At its core, it is a humanitarian movement. It is anti-violence. It tilts the incentives towards peace and cooperation and away from warfare and destruction. Mm-hmm. And if it were not for Bitcoin at this point in human history, I would be extremely pessimistic for where we are headed. But because it exists, Bitcoin gives me hope. And mm-hmm. I'm extremely optimistic about the future of humanity. Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head. What's One area I want to kind of finish up on is that of course, as Bitcoin has got more traction, more mainstream, you know, attention, the big players like um, in the EU, they're being very kind of fearful of it. Even Christine Lagarde said, I'll never forget this. She said that Bitcoin is like, what did she, how does she put it? It was like Bitcoin is, is worthless and should be regulated. And then someone said, uh, I think it was uh, Af- uh, Safadine Amu said, well, if it's worthless, then why are you regulating it? You know? Yeah, that's, uh, so- <laughs> same thing with El Salvador. IMF is saying, oh, the experiment in El Salvador will never work. Yet they're also trying to sanction El Salvador. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you actually think the experiment's never going to work, then you would just move on with your day. Like, if exactly. you're going to go try to create a spaceship, and I think you have no fucking chance in hell of it working. I'm just going to say good luck and go on about my day. I'm not going to try to sanction you and stop your business. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So but what? It's, it's just a testament to the hypocrisy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, these people do not speak truth ever. Just, and that, everything that they say, invert, and that's how you get the truth. And that's why I wanted to, to finish up just briefly on central bank digital currencies. So the the literal like the discussion on the about this is that it is the uh, it's taking the best parts from crypto and moving it into um, a fiat kind of example. So when you see so this being moved across from, we don't need to discuss the kind of Chinese element of it, but especially in the US or, or Europe, what's your perspective on that now as there's more light being shone on that recently? Yeah, again, they're completely full of shit. And what you just said, taking the best parts mm-hmm. of crypto, there is no crypto. Crypto is a casino. Crypto is 
scam world, right? So they're going to take the best parts of the existing scam world and apply it to the legacy scam world. I mean, what does that tell you? It's, it's bad, right? It's everything fiat is, but more centralized, you know, so faster inflation, faster theft, more Chinese social credit score like systems for social engineering, control, manipulation, squashing dissent, tracking, tracing. It's a, it's an absolute globalist dystopian reality. And if you're not stopping to scratch your head for a minute, okay, why are we hearing about central bank digital currencies all of the sudden? It was never talked about before Bitcoin. But Bitcoin is worthless and it needs to be regulated. But now we're creating a competitive response to said worthless thing that needs to be regulated. Like, just sit with their words for a moment and observe the world. It's, this is why I always say that the corruption of money is the corruption of humanity, right? You, you create a system that people can profit from coercion, compulsion, deception, violence. You've tilted the incentives towards these immoral actions. Is it any surprise whatsoever? People that follow incentives, not laws, is it any surprise whatsoever that the characteristics of those people become coercive, compulsive, deceptive, and violent? That's who's talking to you. That's Christina Lagarde. That's Jerome Powell. That's every statesman. That's every, every bureaucrat. Anyone that's representing that the state has any legitimate authority whatsoever is a crony. They're a crook. They're a liar. Do not comply. Reject this shit. Mm-hmm. Right? Embrace the truth. Who, who is anyone to tell you what to do? You're born free. Be free. Question. Think critically. Question what I'm saying, too. I'm not here to... I might sound like I'm preaching sometimes, but I'm just passionate about waking people up. Question mm-hmm. everything that I have to say. Challenge me and do the same to everyone else. That's how we move forward, right? We need to assimilate the honest perspective of 8 billion humans to build the world in a way that works for 8 billion humans. To have one ape preach at 300 million about how things need to be done is a fucking asinine proposition. Mathematically, morally, practically, it does not work, right? So this all may sound a bit radical, but I promise, at least the way I see it, I think it's a much brighter future for human beings. Just Mm -hmm. people left free to conduct their lives as they see fit in a world where wealth can be accumulated and saved through hard work, not confiscated in perpetuity, uh, not under this constant specter of global warfare, right? What what do you think funds the war? We're send, the United States is sending money to Ukraine right now. I think it, it's a, it works out to a lot of money too. A lot of money is going to Ukraine. Did anyone write a check to the government to send money to the Ukraine? 
Did anyone send a wire to the U.S. government to send money to the Ukraine? To Ukraine? How? What do you think it's coming from? Like, just stop and think. Just stop for a moment. Turn off the news. Read read some old books about the history of money. Just grab fiat currency inflation in France. It's a weekend read. It'll take you one mm-hmm. weekend. Read it. Read about how self-deceiving humans can be. And I promise you, if you just look at this little window on history, you'll gain a whole new perspective on the world today. We're going through it again. We've been through it many, many times before. It's just um, much more interconnected this time. All right, we're one world this time due to technology, right? We're wired together, our telecommunications, the internet. We're one city, basically. Mm-hmm. And we're self-destructing. And we're self-destructing because we have self-destructive money. Yeah, and that's what I have always loved about your research and why I wanted to record with you because your opinions are f- formulated by your own research. And that's what I that's what I was loved about your work because you know, all the books you cited, all the analysis you've done is on your critical thinking, your contrarian view of just looking at the world through a fucking narrow lens and thinking, this is what I meant to do. And this is the only thing I have to do in life, you know? So I want to finish up on that point. I feel we could go on for uh, many more hours, but I don't want to keep you too long, but yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I just want to say, you know, I don't, I can't take any credit, really. I'm just assimilating ideas, right? I've read a lot of things I don't agree with, and I've read a lot of things I do agree with. And so uh, my general advice would be for people to read the libertarian philosophers, the Austrian economists, right? They've been talking about this for a long, long, long time. There was just never any practical way to get government off of our backs before Bitcoin. So mm-hmm. it's like all of this hundreds of years of literature is now coming to a head just because the technology has finally emerged. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the best part of it is that it's given people an insight into where to go next, where to read about it. And that was the biggest thing for me, man. When I started looking a bit more under the hood, I was like, what the fuck is happening? A small bit, because I'm just living through it, a bit too young for 2008 in, in the middle of it right now. And just thinking there has to be an alternative. Genuinely, I was like, I was like, there can't be an existing. We can't just do the same stuff we've always done, and expect different results. It's just not possible, you know. So there is no other alternative than Bitcoin. Man, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.